The Kinky Cocktail Hour is brought to you by Motor Bunny, the world's most powerful saddle-style vibrator that offers fabulous creative sexual experiences. We use it and it rotates, it vibrates, and it delivers mind-blowing orgasms. Enjoy Motor Bunny as your favorite sex toy. When you order the Motor Bunny, multiple attachments are included along with the link controller, which allows wireless control from anywhere. Motor Bunny is the world's most powerful saddle-style vibrator on earth. Use the link in the show notes and spice up your sex life with a Motor Bunny. You're listening to Kinky Cocktail Hour, a conversation between adults about sex-forward relationships, kinky lifestyles, and frank communication. If you're under 18, please stop listening and visit scarletteen.com. I'm Lady Petra, and my pronouns are she, hers, and we. I'm Safa Master, and my pronouns are him, his, and we. And this is Kinky Cocktail Hour. Cheers! Cheers. Okay, what are we drinking today? Can you believe it's a new drink? I actually am impressed that you found a new drink. So I'm impressed because our liquor cabinet has diminished so much because we were going through quite a few liqueurs and not replacing them because we're trying to like get set on. We're real close to like designing our liquor cabinet and so like i don't want to buy things that are not necessary right right and you're always gonna have the specialty items but i wanted those in smaller bottles yes you know what i mean so anyway this is called a yin yang yin yang Mm -hmm. and i'll tell you what's in it it's an ounce and a half of añejo okay tequila yep half an ounce of ginger liqueur Half an ounce of rose vermouth, so sweet vermouth, and two dashes of orange bitters. Wow. And then you garnish with a lime twist. Well, the twist is pretty. It's kind of a beautiful drink. It's sort of like an orangey color. Mm -hmm. Doesn't smell particularly like tequila. Yeah, I don't know. That's balanced. It is balanced. It's actually lovely. That's actually surprising. I expected, I know our Añejo is really good, Mm. but I kind of expected a, you know, harshness with tequila. You don't get that at all. At all. Yeah. The floral notes in the bitters and the vermouth tame the tequila and make it quite a delicious, balanced, It's a very drink. balanced drink. It, it actually, I mean, one of the things, it's spirit forward, but it's like what they declare this to be is a digestive. Yeah, I can see that. So, you know, it's a post-dinner type thing, mm-hmm. mostly, but balance and you can see because it's so balanced it's going to smooth your palate and calm everything down yeah this would be a drink you'd get in a fine restaurant I don't think. you think yeah yeah and if you play with the different types i mean we have a really good añejo but mm-hmm. if you play with different añejos that you enjoy you're going to change the flavor of this and i think also if we i use the regular ginger liqueur if i was able to go back to the intense ginger might be different it might be different Again. even still yeah yeah but you're not going to find better añejo than dosamadillo i don't think so yeah. i really think it's good <laughs> it is The Kinky Cocktail Hour is brought to you by Slub USA, the world's strongest, most powerful male masturbator. 
Visit Slub USA at slub, S-L-U-B-B dash USA dot com. Today's conversation is brought to you by WeMinder, a behavior chart app for kinky couples like us. Learn more at WeMinder.app. Well, today on the conversation, we get to visit with an old friend. Yes. So Ann Miller Semper, we first met in a conversation about hardcore masochism. Right. And then the next conversation we had with her, she was dealing with learning about being on the other side of this lash. Yes. So, yes. so I thought, you know, we want to learn what she's learned. So yeah. Admilia Semper, welcome back to the conversation. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be back. Very honored with the third invitation. Round three, let's go. <laughs> well, we love having you on. So what have you learned as dominant? So I wouldn't really, cl- I've learned that I am much more comfortable with just the title of a sadomasochist rather than a dominant. Because while in a scene, I can obviously take on that headspace. I lack the desire to be someone's dominant, like outside of the scene. So that's been a interesting kind of like trying to figure out, am I truly a switch or is it just this particular aspect? of my kink and personality where I do go to the other side. And it seems that I am very much an S-type at heart, but I am also a sadist. So that is something that I have learned. Well, that's interesting. It's actually a really great distinction. The difference between being a top versus being a dominant. And I think getting clear about that was actually worth the experience, don't you? Yeah, I do. Because I, I realize cause there is like a group in my local community that is a femdom group. And that is the only group really in the area that I kind of stay on the left side of the slash. I use it to do a lot of learning and to kind of understand how to do scene management and how to embody that top side role. But when it came down to it, anytime I thought about myself kind of being in a relationship or what I would want in a dynamic Anytime like the opportunity came up where someone was trying to get me to maintain a D-type role, it just didn't fit. It was like trying to fit a square into a circle hole. It just wasn't me, and it left me wanting. So I am very comfortable in the distinction between I am an S-type, I am submissive at heart, but I am a sadist. I like to beat people. I like to make people in pain and marks and cry, but I don't have any desire to be someone's dominant master, mistress, or anything of that sort. I totally resonate with that because I think when you designate switch, it can mean a thousand different things. And I think that's what's also important because then people have to ask you questions because they can't just assume it's submissive dominant. It could be exactly what you're saying that you found. And I think... What I'm hearing is it resonates for me because I, as an on my S side, strongly am drawn to a chosen dominant, right? To manage me, to be caring for me, to be vulnerable with, and to explore that side. But on my dominant side, if you will, those are play things, that's role play, that's other stuff. Because well, for you, I'll, it lives in the world of power. It's more power for me. And so... I get you're saying it's more, you know, sadistic behavior kind of thing. That's me too, in the sense that I don't know, and I haven't gotten a vetted sub yet, but I don't know if I could completely, I don't think I'm polyamorous is what I'm saying. I think I could have a submissive 
and have a role play interaction off and on. But our life on our DSTPE is so busy. I mean, that person has to be able to fit into my life and it has to work for me, not the other way around, because my primary is that. And that's, I, I hear you. So I'm not saying you're exactly the same, but I, it resonates with me what you shared. Where you resonate, like you feel like you're not necessarily polyamorous, which is actually, I found interesting when you were saying that, because I have also done some soul searching and realized I'm probably more of, like I can do ethical non-monogamy, but I think at heart, I'm also monoamorous, where I would really only have like feelings for one person at a time, but I could do multiple, like I, I could, I want to be underneath the E&M umbrella, but poly is not my subset, if that makes sense. See, I get that because I think my experience with a DS and a TPE, which is on all the time, there's no role playing going on. That's a huge commitment. It's a lot of involvement. And in order to keep the dynamic healthy, I have to be engaged. We both have to be engaged 24-7, committed and responsible for the dynamic. 100% of the time. And everything else is a accoutrement right. <laughs> at best. And we both talk about fantasies. What, Like his recent fantasy was something like having a slave in a cage that could come out and clitify me prior to a scene and then go recage her and then I'm really ultra sexualized before a scene just for fun. You know, it's a fantasy. And I see that as, oh, yes, I could see that possibly working with the right person, right? But like that person's not going to be part of what's happening in the scene because there's too much going on. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine a third being in there. I'm in subspace so deep mirroring his dom space. I don't know how I could react in that situation. Yeah. It, it just seems too much. And so after four years, I know the commitment level to being in this all the time, that anything else is someone who, you know, I don't really care gender, but who has adoration for me in my well-being and is willing to acquiesce to what I need and what's important to me when I need it versus being needy and needing me to take over for them because I'm not about that. The high maintenance thing, there's no way. Like Even when it's like the smallest amount of maintenance, what I found like anytime I get into that role, I get very annoyed with the person very quickly. And that's just not supposed to be what I imagine it's like on the D side. It's just like I want, shortly after it happens, I was like, okay, I want this to like stop. I want to disconnect. Like this person is constantly messaging me and it's just like I need to pause. I need to like, this is not some, it just, I don't get any enjoyment out of it. I totally get you. And what I've learned in my sub vetting, there's a million trillion like posers and people that do exactly what you're talking about. And then there's a few, very few, but they're out there who are the right fit. But the problem is you have to get through all the crap to get to the right fit. And that is why I'm vetting now, because the reality is if they can't even go through my vetting, and there's no relatedness, connection, and alignment, I'm not wasting my time because I'm not going to change my life for them. They're looking for a dominant who has certain needs. They need to fit into those needs. And you're right. What really is hard is because I've watched you when you were on your more on your sub side when you were being submissive in like same videos, let's say. You're obedient, okay? So you know what it takes already. And so when people start not doing that, it loses our interest immediately because we're like, hey, fucker, we're already living this life. 
what are you doing? Like, show me you care. Yeah, it's like I'm not at work where I have to manage people. Like, I don't want to be a manager. I don't want to be anyone's mom. Like, you're the one that approached me, not the other way around. Yeah, it's just Chase. It just doesn't – it doesn't fit. But then, like, one of the good things is I went to um, my first ever large-scale kink event recently, and I got to see dynamics of all sorts of different kinds, and it was just amazing to see, like, how everyone handles their relationship and their DS – and their kink and their play so differently. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. We were at DomCon recently. In L.A. In yeah. L.A., yeah. And we went to the Fetish Bowl, which is their large play space. And while we were there, we got present to the scale of role play in kink. There were very few instances where it looked like there was more than a role play occurring. And it's not like I have issues with role play because I don't really care. It's just not who I am. I'm not a role player. And so for me, if there's going to be another person in our life, they literally have to not be a role player. They have to be part of they the have, life. They have to be part of the experience. <laughs> and a contribution to the overall dynamic. Yeah. And a lot of people aren't. They just want what they want from you as if they're almost like a succubus where they just suck everything out of you. They want you to be their fetish dispenser. That's the term that we use in our local. Exactly. exactly. Nuts on. That's nuts on. Yeah. No, that's what it is. And, you know, there are people who do kink for cash, so they can do that from mm-hmm. my point of view. Yeah. What are those people? Yeah. And so I'm interested now that we've sort of dispensed with that. As a sadist, what have you discovered about yourself as a sadist? Probably how scared I was, I guess, of losing control. Because when on my masochism side, obviously, there's only so much that I can control. I mean, I can stop anything at any time. But when I'm the one that's like driving the train, and I can just feel how easy it would be to just go all in, that freaked me out quite a bit initially and just it was that feeling of how easily it could get out of my control and I'm someone that hates to be I know that that's weird for being an S type but I don't like being out of control I don't like being helpless especially when it's myself so that's one of the reasons why I spent so long where I was doing co-topping scenes instead of solo topping scenes it's because I liked having that kind of person to be that safety net just in case. I never actually needed it. But now that I've done more uh, solo topping, I'm more comfortable. And there's still a lot of things that I have to work on, like pacing and how connected, like how to be properly connected, how much does someone need, how much do they not need. But I have learned that I'm pretty good at reading. I'm a lot better at reading a bottom than I anticipated initially. Just because of, um, I've been there before. I know what it's like. I also find it interesting that there's people that talk about having to wrestle with this guilt about what they're doing to somebody. Especially I hear of men who do pain play. And I don't have to wrestle with any of that. Like, I don't feel guilty. There's not an iota of guilt. Because I know that the person wants me to do the things. And I haven't been socialized to not hit whether... It'd be men or really women the way that men have. So, no, listen, as a sadist, I totally get that conversation. In fact, 
I've had that conversation with myself about what's reasonable to do and not do. But I wanted to not step over what you talked about, which is this notion of monitoring yourself as a sadist in a scene and interacting with the bottom and the submissive during the scene in a way that grows the scene for them on a gradient so that you don't get ahead of yourself or get ahead of them. And, you know, as a sadist with a masochist, what you have is an agreement around safe words. And so the ability to have that in your back pocket, like I may get ahead of myself, but then they have a safe word to help me monitor, right? I prefer to not rely on safe words. So like, I know that me as a bottom, I don't like having to call red because to me that just internally causes me to internalize a feeling of I've ended the scene too early. Instead, I just, I've gotten, I rely mostly on, I rely a lot on check-ins. I'll check in with them often, especially since I play with a lot of people that are new to me when I'm going, especially with the safe word conversation, I go over what does this word mean to you? Like what safe words do you use? Because I have personally found that when I've done play as a bottom, there was one time someone wanted me to like fit their meaning and it was really hard for me to change what a word meant without like the proper reminders in a scene. And then that person got mad at me because I didn't do, I fell back on what was habitual and not what they wanted me to do. So I tend to rely mostly, especially with people, uh, people that are new. Okay. What does this word mean to you? What do you use? And I will tailor myself to that rather than them trying to change their entire eternal definitions of words to fit the person they played with for the very first time. No, I get that. And of course it makes a lot of sense because they're in subspace. You don't want them to have to process facts. So that makes sense. Now, I think something you should consider, I don't know if this will work for you, but you have a sense of your intensity level. Like maybe your intensity level for this particular bottom is a seven. But if you were to give them a gradient scale of one to 10 and ask them, I'm at a seven, where are you? And they say they're a five, then you know, you've got to recalibrate as the top to a five where you think a seven is. So you can continue versus if you say you're at a seven emotionally and they say they're at a nine, you've got to calibrate backwards. You've got to wind yourself down a little bit because there is something very challenging as a top as a sadist in a scene with a masochist where you've got to both be the sadist and the top in the scene, but also monitor the well-being of the bottom or the submissive. Because like I've told Lady Petra all along, my primary responsibility as her dominant is her well-being. And in a scene where I'm the sadist and she's the masochist, I might use six implements and be hitting her with a fair amount of force a thousand times. I've got to monitor her physical body, the way she responds, the intensity of the change in the skin. All of that's got to be constant. One of those Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, you know, the thing with your eye, which kind of just like dials it right in. Well, it's like driving a car. Your eyes are supposed to always be moving. You're supposed yeah. to be using a whole Yeah, everything. so I get the challenge that you're having because I experience that challenge once a week, if not every day with Lady Petra because she's a masochist. And, you know, for us, it isn't about me trying to cause her to cry. That's not my intention. I'm not a sadist in that sense. Mm-hmm. I'm what you would call a sensual sadist where our S&M 
play is wrapped up in our sexuality. So yeah. it's really about expanding our pleasure, actually. Yeah. And well, and I was thinking about what you guys were both saying about safe words. And of course, you're playing with new people. And I always think this, even when we made our safe words, yeah. I remember thinking, and I think I added this as an addendum. I said, when I'm incoherent in subspace, there are natural human things that will happen that will tell you it's enough yeah. or the intensity is too much. If I'm skirting away from your impacts, it's probably something about the frequency that's happening there the that's beyond yeah. my language at the time, but I'm skirting away because it's beyond it's my tolerance, yeah, right? too much, yeah. I said also in throes of, even in the deepest subspace, people can say no or yeah. stop. Those have to be ultimate safe words that are recognized by anyone because the reality is, is as soon as someone says that and you continue, it's assault. Because at that point, if you think about a courtroom, they said no or they said stop. And if we're all true kinksters trying to be ethical in what we're participating in with and, consent. And, and integral. And, and that's what I said to you. I said, listen, I'm going to try to remember these safe words. They aren't words I would say because normally – if someone's hurting me to a point where I don't want it to happen anymore, I'll say, stop that. Right. Or no, you're giving me a new safe word and I'll try to remember that. But I negotiated that I want you to pay attention to me yeah, because I may lose language. And I think at this point where we're playing, I'm losing language a lot. And the other thing is, I always define two safe words. You talked about red, which I think is a absolute stop. But we like to use yellow, which is I like what you're doing, but slow the fuck down intensity or something yeah. has to change. Yeah. You need to get clarity on what's going on. I was trained on that same definition of yellow, but I've since switched over to plain language and just asking for what it is that I've wanted. And then because of the one time that I did go like nonverbal and non-responsive, I've put into negotiations on both sides of the house. Okay, this is what I want you to do to check in on me, but I'll also tell the people that I'm playing with, okay, well, I'll ask you questions in the scene. And then if you're answering me just fine, that's awesome. But the minute you start like struggling to respond to me or you stop, I'm going to switch to yes or no questions, things that are very easy to answer non-verbally. And then as long as you're still communicating with me, like I'll consider us good to go. But the minute you stop or you, I tell you to do something and you're very, very slow or very reluctant, like I'm going to at that point consider yourself unable to communicate and at that point the scene's gonna be over because you cannot communicate to me withdrawal of consent so that's kind of what i do on both sides for myself when i'm playing with someone else and then when someone's playing with me i really like that and i would say that when you're playing at a high level i think what one of the things that helped me and we're, you know, Saffron and I are on a journey to explore the depths of where we can go with our kink. And one of the things that was the most transformative was, you know, he likes to mark his property. So get canings part of it. Mm -hmm. When he would say, okay, now I'm going to start caning you. And he'd always give me a first mark. The power in me being in subspace to be able to ask for my next mark, whether that's a two minutes between or a minute between whatever, or right after whatever allows you to read your submissive because they're actually having to speak. They want another mark. They have to speak and say, and I think that traditionally, if you look at different dynamics, you'll see people say, say thank you afterwards and ask for another or things like that. Those are techniques to find out 
where the submissive is. Because really, let's be honest, if the submissive, no matter how bad a mask is, if you are not ready, you're not going to say anything. You may not say no, but you may not say anything because it's all about pleasing your dominant. But that's a dead giveaway also for your dominant to make a choice in your best interest without having the submissive relinquish what they might construe as a wrongness by not being able to take it. But what it really is, is just that's where their body is at that moment. Their brain and body are there at that moment. And that's okay because there's nothing wrong. Or like waiting for them to like reset themselves if they get a hard hit and then they react strongly and move, letting them, you know, move back into position also gives time. Let's them let you know that they're ready for the next one as well in a nonverbal sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so... For me, you know, as a dominant sadist, I want to mark my property. Like, that's what I want. And I'm going to use a cane to do that because that's our agreement. And for months, I try to read how to meter the strokes, like how often they should occur, how what the frequency should be, what the intensity should be. And it was really hard to figure it out because I wasn't in her head. And then one day she asked to be marked and I was like, okay, well, there's an opening. So let's explore that. Now she asks for marks. And I mean, recently she asked for like 35 marks, which is intense caning. That's, you know, when you're talking you're to a sadist, <laughs> so, so she's got a seasoned ass. So for me to mark her, I've got to hit her hard enough to bruise her through her seasoned ass. Yeah. So it's intensity level, like a hundred, right? And she went 35 times. And I, was I like, could have gone more, but I just think I was losing myself in the subspace. And I was, I don't know what I was worried about per se. I just felt like I was lost someplace. Like I wasn't quite there. And I just, I didn't know if that was a bad thing or a good thing, but I just said at one point, thank you for my marks. That's enough. You which know, is that our kind of, stopping point. And really, it wasn't any longer the pain it, or any of that. It wasn't painful for that matter. It was a choice on my psychology, like where I was emotionally, psychologically at the time. I, I didn't recognize myself anymore and yeah. wasn't scared by it, but was more like, maybe this is a good point to stop. Yeah. You know, and, that, yeah. and so I stopped. I think I have an idea. Like there's a point that I've been to and I've only been to it once and this was something that the person I was playing with, Stet, was doing on purpose, where he was got to right close to my limit and then notched it down by one and then just kept hitting me. And then eventually what happened was I kind of disassociation is like the wrong word, but like my body went into a mode where it mentally checked itself out, where it dulled the pain. I was still present, but I definitely wasn't capable of speaking. There's been a couple of times when I've been kind of close to that and I just see that there, I have a sense that there's a door and I want to go through the door, but I have not yet been able to get to the other side of the door yet. So maybe one day. Uh, I totally get that because that's what it feels like. It feels like there's something right there in front of me that I need to be at or get to or like you say, a door. But there's nothing really drawing me there, right? It has to be self-motivated. And... I'm in such a subspace. I'm not sure if I can self-motivate or if I should. And, you know, at that point, when you're that subby, I'm having all kinds of like these weird experiences electrically and energetically with him 
that is interfering with me even having a thought that can carry on, you know, beyond, oh, I noticed that happening again. You so know? she's having like massive orgasms frequently. Yeah, it's, it's, it's intense. And like that is fascinating. I don't go into subspace, so people always talk about it and I have no idea what it feels like because it's just not something that I experience. So you maintain your consciousness? Like, also uh, yeah, I'm pretty much still who I am. Pretty much through the entire road. And I think that also is probably the reason why I don't really drop either. So like I can't really ever recount a time where I've experienced drop as a result of physical masochism. Interesting. Well, you know, we introduced hypnokink in our play a few months back. And the intention there was to get her into a trance state quicker than she got into a trance state. So normally in our scenes, it would take you know, 10, 15 minutes before she was in a trance state. But now we start in a trance state. And so that's something you might consider exploring is just looking into the opportunity that hypnokink affords you to access that altered state. That altered state, yeah, yeah, really. The other thing is that we sometimes do breath play and the combination of hypnokink and, yeah, you know, deoxygenation, like that sort of hypoxic state, yeah, changes. that creates a sense of a high like nothing else. Yeah. The closest thing I've ever had to a high is the nails. The idea of hypnosis just kind of freaks me out. I'm like, I have an interesting relationship with bondage when I'm in pain where I can deal with it up until a certain point. And then once I get to a certain pain threshold, I usually need something back because I start having this panic attack because I feel helpless because I'm trying at that point to get away and I just can't. I'm stuck where if I'm freestanding, then I know that the only thing keeping me there is myself and I can be pushed a little bit further. So just like the idea of hypnosis, it's like mental bondage to me where like it's that same sense of helplessness that kind of is very off-putting to me as a person. Yeah, but hypnosis, you can't be hypnotized if you don't want to Yeah, that's the interesting thing about it. It is completely an internal choice. Now, you obviously, I get it. You have to be with the right partner and there has to be trust and all that stuff that you can be vulnerable with. So that, I believe, automatically has to be there, especially in kink. However, I am in that. So I am able to let go and dive deep. And what I've learned is... I can bring myself to hypnosis levels before he even speaks to me. For example, when he puts chains on me in high protocol scenes, I have already dropped. Like I'm gone already. And it's not like I can't speak to him or that I can't tell what's going on to me. You know, it's none of that. Yeah, you have understanding. I have understanding. I have clarity. But because the way we kink, there isn't a lot of talking. So we just know each other's moves to move to the next iteration yeah, of the more, scene. It's more of a dance. Really. Yeah, it's more of a dance. I mean, isn't it always a dance? Even it's like the masochism tango. There's a whole song about it. No, uh, it's true. Well, Admilura Semper, this is another fun conversation we've enjoyed. It's huge to, to have you. you realize that about yourself. I think that's huge. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on again. Well, thank you for having me. That's it for today. If you're interested in kinky relationship coaching, online domination, or if you'd like to sponsor the pod to keep it going, please visit our Patreon website at Lady Petra Playground. You can reach me via email at ladypetraplayground at gmail.com. Our music is composed and performed by Roger Ferguson, who can be found at rogerfergusonmusic.com. Till next time, cheers! Cheers!